Prime Minister in a speech given on January the 13th concerning the situation in Iraq and Afghanistan has met with a very angry response by British soldiers. So what was it he said that aroused such fierce criticism? Well, after commending the British troops, and I quote, for doing the most incredible job in circumstances of extraordinary danger with a bravery that we should be very, very proud of as a country, Mr. Blair added, on the part of the military, they need to accept that in a volunteer armed force, conflict and therefore casualty may be part of what they are called upon to face. Now, while we may legitimately raise questions about our involvement in these conflicts and concerns about the conditions and resources available to our troops, surely there can be no question that if you join the army, you can expect to face conflict and even casualties. Yes, I guess many soldiers, most I would imagine, hope that their role will be only that of peacekeepers. But enemy action will mean conflict. Now in Britain, very few of us are called upon to fight in the army. We don't, no longer have conscription, for which I guess most of the people are grateful. But if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, there is no option... Yes, Christians are called upon to be peacemakers, but we also face an enemy who is constantly seeking opportunities to attack us. And while many in the West, though much less in other parts of the world, doubt his existence, the Bible states without question the existence of a malevolent, evil personality, a power person called the devil, or Satan, which means the accuser, to give but two of his names. So, writing to these fellow Christians, the Apostle Peter warns them. He says, be controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. However, the problem is, while the devil may act like a lion, he doesn't usually look like a lion. In another letter to Christians, the Apostle Paul warns them that Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's 2 Corinthians 11.14, if you want the reference. He uses subtle strategies and arguments that seem very reasonable. And so, as we continue our series in Luke's Gospel, good news of great joy for all people, Jesus faces his first direct encounter, as far as we know, his enemy encounter. So we're going to read the story and then we're going to focus on it. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke 4. If you haven't got a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. Hope to have one in front of you. Luke chapter 4 and we're going to read the first 13 verses. It's very hot in here. I'll take my coat off, I think. <clears throat> sure, I've got the right shirt on as well with the sleeves in. This is the word of God, Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. <clears throat> Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, 
returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me, I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you'll not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is... God's word. Now, you'll notice the heading that's been added. Of course, it's not in the original, but the NIV translators have added at the beginning of this section the temptation of. You're listening? What's it say? Yeah, there's no catch. It says the temptation of Jesus. And while we can, and we will as we go through in the next few minutes, look at what help we can gain from this story when we attempted. That is not the primary reason Luke has included this story in his gospel. Now, first and foremost, it is a continuation of the account of how Jesus, the man who is God, faces the enemy for the first time and wins the first victory in a war which will finally be settled at the cross three years and 19 chapters later. So primarily, this is about the temptation of Jesus. So look with me. I've been trying to think of a way to get to, to, to kind of present this that will be intelligible to me, at least presenting it, let alone to you listening to it. So uh, what I want to outline are three factors which determine the outcome of the conflict, which will determine which way it goes. Uh, these are actually true of any conflict in war or any personal battle or fight. There are three things that are important. Okay, one, timing, when to fight. Two, terrain, where to fight. Three, tactics, how to fight. And they all begin with T, because preachers always begin three things with the same letter. So, in fact, I know you should just ignore it. All right. Uh, we will, as Luke intends, and uh, does in his gospel, we'll spend a little more time on the third one of these. So, first of all, timing, when to fight. It's of vital importance to know when to fight. Individuals and armies choose to fight when they are prepared and when their opponent is least prepared or, best of all, totally unprepared. Think, for example, of the surprise tactics of December the 7th, 1941, when the American fleet was caught unprepared at Pearl Harbor and the Japanese army bombed it out of sight. The United States wasn't prepared. In fact, it took them probably another 18 months to get their act together so they could respond appropriately. Now, when we come to the story of the temptation of Jesus, it's really important to see very clearly that the devil's attack on Jesus was no surprise sortie that caught him unawares. 
No, look what preceded it. And if you listen to the series, you can get it on the net or by tape if you weren't here last week. Look what preceded the temptation of Jesus. Very important. After his baptism, Jesus receives the Spirit's empowering and the Father's commendation. Luke 3.22 The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love with you. I'm well pleased. So, notice very importantly, at this point, Jesus is fully prepared because he is full of the Spirit. He is fully prepared because he goes into battle full of the Spirit. The Spirit will sustain him for 40 days without food. Not just physically, but spiritually. And at the end of this period, though like any other man, and he is fully man, he will be physically incredibly hungry, he is still spiritually strong. The devil may think at this point, ah, he's vulnerable. And he's weak, but he will discover that he is strong. Even at the point of greatest human weakness, Jesus is still stronger than Satan, for he is filled with the Spirit and he is following the Father's timetable. Now, it's very important for us as well that if we go into battle, we are following the Father's timetable. You have no chance of winning unless you're full of the Spirit. If you find yourself in a place where you ought not to be, where God has not put you, don't expect to win. You'll probably fall flat on your face. Jesus is our example who follows the Father's timetable. The timetable for Jesus is to face and defeat the ruling power behind the many enemies he will encounter on this journey that will take him from the north in Galilee right up to Jerusalem where he will face the final encounter with Satan and all his hosts. So when he goes into battle, here's the first thing, timing. He has the advantage of timing. He's following the Father's timetable. Okay, secondly, the terrain, where to fight? Where did the battle take place? Well, we're told that the battle, the temptation, took place in the desert. Uh, we can't be exactly sure which desert they're referring to. If you're thinking of Sahara Desert type sand dunes sort of thing, it almost certainly wasn't that probably refers to the Judean wilderness, which still looks today like it did then and always has done. It is a barren place devoid of human habitation. Wherever it was, notice very importantly that Jesus, full of the Spirit, is led by the Spirit. He's following the Father's timetable and the Father's directions. The desert is the divine destination for Jesus led by the Spirit. If you look in Luke's Gospel, uh, Luke uses an even stronger word. It says the Spirit sent him out into the desert. Greek word, it's Greek word, ekbalo, it means literally to throw out. In other words, the Spirit thrust him out into the desert. So what I want to say is the desert then is no mistake, it's no accidental location. See, every army chooses certain places for training its new recruits. God has a place where he trains those in his service. And the place God trains us is in the desert. Not necessarily literally, but a place where we're alone with God with no human resources and little help. A place where God faces our and tests our reliance on him. 
Um, Michael Card, one of my favourite Christian songwriters, is a bit more thoughtful than some of them, anyway. I like them all, but I like Michael Card. If you know Michael Card's songs, he's got, a, he's got a song called In the Wilderness. I won't sing it for you, but here's the chorus. In the wilderness, in the wilderness, he calls his sons and daughters to the wilderness. And he gives grace sufficient to survive any test. And that's the faithful purpose of the wilderness. So it was in the desert where God tested his people, Israel. Remember? Thought about it a bit this morning. Following their rescue from slavery in Egypt, in order to prepare them for the promised land that lay ahead of them, instead of just taking them from Egypt and woof, straight there into the promised land, God has got a testing period, 40 years, far longer than it needed to have been because of their unbelief. But the desert is a place of testing for the people of Israel. The great tragedy is that the people of Israel failed the test. And the scriptures use this as a warning, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, about failing the desert test. Hmm. Psalm 95, it's quoted in Hebrews as well for Christians. This is what the psalmist says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's writing to people of Israel, of course. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, two places where they failed the test. Where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was angry with this generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They've not known my ways, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Okay, the people of God failed the test in the desert. Now, here's Jesus, the Son of God, but also the Son of Adam. Facing testing or temptation, the, the Greek word for test and temptation is the same word. In the desert. The desert is a place of testing for Jesus. Now, if you look at this story really carefully, and you need to do some digging and thinking, I think as Jesus spends this 40 days in the wilderness, he is fully aware of the connection. And this is not speculation on my part. Let me explain why I think that's the case. Because we're going to see in a moment that Jesus answers the devil by quoting three scriptures. They're all from the same book in the Bible, and they're all from the same section. Deuteronomy 6 and 8. And I'm convinced that our Lord Jesus Christ, reflecting on God's word in the desert, he's learning, as it were, he's reading the desert training manual. I mean, he's necessarily got a scroll, but in these 30 years at this point, he's learned the scriptures. He's reflecting on God's word to prepare himself for the test that is about to come. So Luke's gospel reminds us that the desert is the divine destination where Jesus will be tested as God's people were in the past, but here's the crucial difference. Where they failed, he wins. Where they failed, he wins. It's a test, he won. But in order to win, he must overcome the devil's tactics. So now we turn thirdly from the timing and the terrain to the tactics, how to fight. We read, if you look closely at the text, that Jesus spent 40 days in the desert without food. Matthew uses the literal word fasting. Matthew 4.2. People have made comparisons, of course, between the 40 days that Moses spent on the mountain of God, twice I think it was, the 40 days that Elijah spent without food when he was running away after the great encounter on Mount Carmel, and it's 1 Kings 19, something like that. Uh, but this is different. Same time period. 
Of course, the Israelites spent 40 years because people spend longer than individuals. Uh, Jesus was tempted by the devil, but it's at the end of these 40 days that he faces these three specific temptations when, humanly speaking, he's at his lowest and weakest. Now, again, it's very important as you read this, and as I reflected on this, it looks like one of those scriptures that everybody knows and it's got obvious lessons, but you need to think a little more carefully when trying to do that over these past few days. It's important not to personalise these temptations. Listen, the devil will never tempt you to turn stones into bread. Why? Because you ain't got the ability. <laughs> this is a personal test for Jesus. So, what is the devil's purpose in these temptations? What, what is he trying to do? Well, primarily, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's trying to wreck his mission. Though King Herod had failed to destroy the baby Jesus, at the start of his life, an agent of Satan, Satan now attempts to subvert the mission of Jesus, the Messiah, right at the start. Now, how is he going to do this? He's going to do it by breaking the relationship that Jesus knows the intimate relationship with his Father by undermining the relationship with the Father. I've been recommending commentaries to read and books on Luke. Here's one I've recommended before from Howard Marshall. Praetors out of Aberdeen. More dead, I think he's retired now. Um, this is what it says. Behind the temptation lies the desire to turn Jesus aside from the fulfillment of his messianic task by striking at his relationship to the Father. See, following the affirmation, you remember what we just read? After his baptism, Jesus heard the voice from heaven. The Father said, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Amazing. He goes into the desert. And after 40 days of fasting, Satan comes to him and says, Really? Is that what you are? The Father's beloved Son. Let's test that out. Uh, two of the temptations directly say that. If, since you are the Son of God, says Satan, the third one implies it. Now, the devil's tactics always are to break and damage the relationship we enjoy with God, your Heavenly Father. If you're a Christian, God has brought you into an intimate relationship with Him. Through His Son, Jesus, you become sons and daughters of the living God and you know what it is to know the Father's love in your life. If you don't know that, then you're missing out on what you were made for, the greatest relationship possible. You're not a Christian. Well, seek the Lord while he may be found. God offers you this wonderful, intimate relationship with him. Now, you come into that relationship. You, you may have just become a Christian. And for the first time in the world, you realize, God loves me. He's like the father I never knew. He's better than the best father you ever had. Now, what is the devil going to do? He's going to try and destroy your trust in God as your heavenly Father. He may be doing it right now, through circumstances, through difficulties. And you go to church, like this evening, you sing a great song like we just sang, you made me glad, and wow, isn't that fantastic? And you go from here, and something happens, the devil says, you don't really believe that. How's that possible? Now, the devil is a created being. He always repeats his tactics. He's not an innovator. God is the creator. The devil is always an imitator. So you can learn from his strategy. Just think for a moment. If you know the Bible, you should know this story. It's the most important story. Right at the beginning of the Bible. 
How did Satan do this with our first parents, Adam and Eve? There they were in the garden, paradise, enjoying everything that God had given them. And the devil comes along and he says, Has God said you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? What's he doing? He's sowing doubt. Someone says, No, 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 you got that wrong. We can eat, we can eat any of the trees in the garden, but there's one we're not to eat because if we eat it, we'll die. And the devil says, that's a lie. That's God, he's depriving you of something. If you eat it, you'll become like God. Knowing good and evil. Taken in by the lie. The doubt that is sown germinates in the mind. And they take action and they take and eat with disastrous consequences for all their descendants. Now, Jesus, fully God but fully man, the first human being since Adam to enjoy a sinless relationship with the Father faces the same tactic with the same purpose. So, the three temptations that Jesus faces target his relationship with the Father. I want to suggest uh, each of the temptations has a particular point in that relationship. Uh, look at it from this perspective then. Three attacks on Jesus' relationship uh, with the Father. The first test relates to the Father's provision. Verses 3 to 4. Like the temptation offered to Adam and Eve and to many of the temptations we face, it's related to appetite. If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And now, while Adam and Eve could enjoy every fruit in the garden except one, Jesus was very hungry, having not eaten for 40 days. And with no other food available, does it not seem a very reasonable suggestion? He's got the power to do it. A reasonable suggestion. But, what the devil is tempting Jesus to do is to act independently of God, of his Father. You see, the Father has led him into the desert. The Father has sustained him for 40 days without food. But now in his real hunger, here's the test. Will he take action to satisfy his own personal needs or will he continue to trust the Father? And Jesus defends himself against this attack by quoting Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Jesus answered, man does not live by bread alone. It's important to get that in its context. In fact, just keep you all alert, just keep your finger in Luke and just turn back to where it happens in Deuteronomy 8, page 187. 187. Verse 2, Deuteronomy 8, Desert Training Manual, chapter 8, section 2. I think our Lord was meditating on these words. Can't prove it, but... Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert those 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In another commentary, the NIV application commentary on Luke, Daryl Buck writes, 
Jesus' reply from Deuteronomy, man does not live on bread alone, reveals that one's well-being is not limited to being well-fed. As necessary as food is, it is not as important as being sustained by the word of God. For Jesus, truth is living in awareness of God's promise of care and relying on him even when God leads him into the wilderness. If Jesus is God's beloved son, as was declared at the baptism, God will care for him. He doesn't need to step out and take independent action. If he does, it will break the relationship. Recognizing what is happening, Jesus refutes the attack. The devil shifts to a second line of attack. This time, on the Father's plan. Verses 5 to 8. Jesus take, uh, the devil takes Jesus to a high place, probably in a vision, or literally, we're not sure. There's not anywhere on earth that I know of where you can see all the kingdoms of the world at the same time, but that's what he understands by it. All the kings of the world, he says, I will give you all their authority and splendor. Unlike the first temptation to satisfy his own personal needs, this one is a bit more subtle, is it not? For it appears to offer Jesus that which is his ultimate goal and the goal of the Father. It's described in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that day when the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Or to put it in the Old Testament, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, quoted in Isaiah and Habakkuk. In other words, the goal of Jesus is that all the nations will come and worship. And the devil says, i give you that right now. Well, of course, the devil was overstating his claims. Didn't actually have the power to give what he offered. The devil is a liar and the father of lies, as our Lord himself reminded Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 8. Although Jesus describes him as the prince of this world, the only authority he has in the lives of those who submit to his authority. He's offering more than he can give. And while ruling the kings of the world may be the ultimate God of Jesus, the important point is that the price he's got to pay is far too high. So if you worship me, it will be yours. So in defense, Jesus responds with another scripture, again from Deuteronomy 6 this time. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now the point of this is, Jesus has a route to follow, to achieve the goal that the Father has set out for him, but there are no shortcuts to glory. The Father's plan is by way of the cross. And having failed twice in respect to the Father's provision and plan, the devil focuses thirdly and finally on the Father's protection. Verses 9 to 13. Uh, if you know some of the debate about the Gospels, you'll know that Matthew has the second and third temptations in a different order. And people say, oh, that proves that the Bible's not true or reliable. Of course it doesn't. These people knew this when they wrote it. Matthew writes chronologically. Luke writes thematically. Places the third, the second one third. Why? Because he wants to finish in Jerusalem at the temple, which is the place where the final battle will be won. So the devil leads Jesus to the highest point in the temple, again, whether in the vision or literally, 
Uh, most people think it's a spot, if you're interested in these things, on the south side of the outer court. The Jewish historian Josephus says there was an incredible drop that when you looked down it made you feel dizzy. It's a drop of several hundred feet down into the Kidron Valley below. And the devil says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And having been refuted twice by the scriptures, the devil, who is a very clever fighter as well, quite able to quote the new scripture, uses the word of God himself. He says, throw yourself down, because here's a valid promise. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. It's Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. Now, what is he doing here? Well, some people say, oh, he's trying to persuade Jesus to do something miraculous, you know, jump off the temple so everybody will see him, like Superman, you know, he'll just, just kind of gracefully drop to the ground without being hurt, and all the crowds will be impressed. That's not the point of the, of the temptation at all. There aren't any crowds in the desert. <laughs> what he's challenging Jesus about is, the Father says you're his beloved son, does he really care for you? Will he really protect you in all circumstances? Okay, let, let's, let's try it out and see. Jump off the temple and let's see if he really will come up with the goods. Now, Jesus is not taken in. For while the promise is valid, to do what the devil suggests is a sin of presumption. I'm reminded of a friend, we actually support him in this church who's a Muslim convert. He works in a very dangerous situation. Uh, I pray for his protection because his life could be snuffed out at any particular time. And he once said something to me, which I always remembered. He said to me, he said, I'm prepared to be a martyr, but I don't plan to commit suicide. What he was actually saying is, I'm prepared to die for Christ if he calls me to do that, but I'm not going to put my life in ministry in unnecessary danger. To do so would be to put God to the test. And that's the defense Jesus uses against the devil. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16 this time. Jesus answered, it says, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So in each of these three tests, Jesus refutes the devil with scripture and defeats him decisively. It is the first battle and victory, but it is certainly not the last. <coughs> Look how Luke concludes this account, verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You see, the victory, instead of weakening the relationship with the Father, any test that we win in God's power strengthens our relationship with God. He remains on track with the mission the Father has called him to do, so verse 14, we'll see next week, Colin is down to speak on this. Colin Adams, our assistant pastor. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. But ahead of him, through these years up to the cross, will be further tests. Satan is not finished yet. There's going to be an ongoing battle. Every battle we win is not the last battle. Only when we reach glory will that be the last battle. Only then we'll be free from sin and the attacks of Satan. Sometimes it happens through unexpected people. Let me give you a couple of examples. Both of them related to followers of Jesus, disciples that he chose. Remember that very important point in the Gospel account. When Jesus begins to tell his disciples 
that he must suffer and die. They recognize that he's the Christ. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be crucified in Jerusalem. And Peter, with the best of intentions, says, takes him on one side and says, Never, Lord! Notice what Jesus says to Peter. In other words, Jesus rebuked Peter. This is in Mark's Gospel, Mark 8, 33. Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan! He said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What is happening here? The devil is at it again. He's trying to divert Jesus from the divinely appointed path that the Father has for him. And he's working even through his close disciple, one of his three closest disciples, Peter. And finally, as you come to the end of the story, we'll come, God willing, to it probably next year if we continue at this rate. But um, the devil enters another of the disciples. Luke 22, 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Jesus is betrayed and crucified. And it will seem like complete victory for the devil and all his hosts. But in fact, it is the Father's plan, which he has followed to the letter. And the cross is the place of final victory. Where Satan and all his hosts are decisively defeated. So writing to Christians in Colossae, the Apostle Paul says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2, verse 15. It's that lovely picture of the Roman emperor conquering in triumph, leading in chains all the defeated leaders from the place where he's conquered them. Now, we've almost finished. And you want to get to the after church, some of you, so almost there. What do we take from this story about the temptation of Jesus? Simply this. Christus victor. Jesus is the victor. The devil is a defeated foe. Those who trust in Jesus share in his victory. So, Jesus, therefore, the scriptures tell us, is able to help us when we are tempted. book of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is now risen from the grave after his crucifixion he is ascended at the father's right hand he is willing and able to help us in our need and Hebrews 2.13 says because he himself suffered when he was tempted he is able to help those who are tempted if you are tempted you have someone who will help you who knows exactly what you are going through not as superman but as the man Christ Jesus who is still in glory as the man Christ Jesus And later in the same letter we are reminded, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, just as we are, yet was without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15. Now, how did he succeed against temptation? He didn't use superman powers which he possessed. He didn't turn stones into bread and jump off pinnacles, which none of us can do. But the man Christ Jesus used the same resources that are available to us. The weapons we possess, what are they? One, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus was full of the Spirit. So we also can and should be filled with the Spirit if we are to win the battle against temptation. John writes in his first epistle, The one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 4 verse 4. And what's the other weapon we have? We have the same weapon that Jesus used effectively against the devil. The word of God. It is written. The word of God now both old and new covenants. Old and new testaments. 
So the Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Ephesus, Ephesus was the great centre of occult power in the ancient world. And he writes to these Christians, he says, put on the full armour of God. It's all defensive stuff. You know, the shield, the breastplate, the shoes, and all that kind of stuff. There's only one aggressive weapon. The Word of God. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Of course, like our Saviour, it means being familiar with your weapon. How many verses from Deuteronomy can you quote? Deuteronomy. Very man. That's why in this church we study all of God's Word. Because it will be a useful weapon at some point in you when you're tempted. Psalmist says, Thy word, this is all translation quote here, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. So that when you're tempted, if you know the word of God, God can bring it to mind if it's sown in your mind. But he doesn't program it without you putting the effort in. So know the word of God. Use the word of God. Be familiar with the word of God. So, this is the final thing I need to say. If you are a Christian this evening, expect to fight because you have an enemy. And secondly, expect to win as you trust in God's Son, not yourself. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. That's the Apostle Paul. May that be your experience and mine as it was for the Lord Jesus Christ.